Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Tyler Hart, the Senior Portfolio Manager at Seagate Capital Management. After spending about nine years at Artisan Partners, Tyler decided to go out on his own and start a firm in 2018. Tyler is an unabashed value investor who even wrote a book called Value Investing, A Disciplined Framework. In this insightful conversation, we discussed the founding story of Seagate Capital and why Tyler felt like he was ready to be an entrepreneur, how Tyler finds companies that both have sustainable competitive advantages and trade at reasonable valuations, why he decided to write a book about value investing, what he learned about himself as an investor during a very difficult environment in 2020, and the guardrails he has put in place to help prevent his strategy from losing money. And without any further ado, here's my interview with Seagate Capital's Tyler Hart. After spending nine years at Artisan, you decided to start Pelican Bay, now called Seagate. I would love to hear the founding story and about what you made you feel like you were ready to be your own boss. Yeah, you know... I, th- I think if you ever become an investor and you're you're managing money, you you know you want to have your own shop, right? And that was something I always wanted to do uh, from day one. And I knew that I'd be an artisan for at least ten years. In fact, I, I told one of my partners when I signed up that you have my commitment for ten years. You know, I'd love to do something at some point, but I'm going to work for you for ten years. And then you know, I was lucky and fortunate to work with you know the three PMs there. Um, George Sertle, Scott Satterwhite, Jim Kiefer, like all amazing investors. And what ultimately ended up happening is in you know, year five, Scott Satterwhite retired. And I'd argue he's one of the best small cap value investors on the planet up there with Chuck Royce and, and George Wiper. Um, and then you've got, you know, and then George retired and I'm sitting there and I was two or three years early and I just felt like it was time to go and um, do it now. And uh, the markets have been you know going well for a while value was out of favor so i figured hey maybe we're bottoming on the value trade so let's go start a value fund and uh i was you know spending christmas in our vacation house in naples florida and i just didn't want to go back to atlanta which is where i worked at artisan and um figured hey you know i've stopped growing there uh two of my three mentors have left um let's just go do it and so you know i think looking at that in retrospect if there's anyone listening to this that wants to do this um i think there's no good time but it, i would also say don't go it alone. You know, I, I went alone and that was probably a mistake, which is why I ended up ultimately, you know, selling the company and, and partnering with a bigger RIA that's local uh, to Naples um, called Moran. And, you know, if you think about it, I just, I didn't have that salesperson with me. I didn't have a lot of infrastructure. So when the, when you know, I'm putting good numbers up and like the pension funds call, so I get a call from, you know, a state, a big state pension fund and they're, Hey, great numbers. Tell me about your process. Okay. Tell me about a little bit about your firm. And you're like, well, um, you know, how many employees do you have? Well, it's just me. Well, where's your office? Well, I'm working out of my house. You know, that's just not something that any, you know, pension fund wants to hear or Mercer or anybody else. So 
ultimately by joining partners uh, and, and starting a new institutional arm at Moran, which is a local RIA that's gotten scale and has $4 billion under assets and has everything I needed. That just made a lot more sense versus going and spending half a million dollars and doing it myself and, you know, taking to build that infrastructure. It was already here and they're great people. I was, you know, meeting with them frequently, discuss stocks, and I was talking to them about sub-advising at their shop anyway. So instead of becoming a sub-advisor, they gave me an offer that I couldn't refuse and um, had all the assets I needed. So it really accelerated the time frame uh, to grow the business to where it is today. And then as you think about solving for that question, that, 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 that problem, which is, you know, you need an institution behind you to be able to attract those institutional investors. How have you thought about, you know, building a team internally use, you know, are you just leveraging Moran's assets? Like how, how is it working now versus, you know, when you were on your own? The nice thing is I'm not the compliance director anymore, right? So when the SEC comes, I'm not dealing with that. Um, I'm not worried about IT issues anymore. I'm really just focused on getting to train an analyst right now. So I'm training an analyst from scratch. Um, and I'm really excited about that. Um, and you know, it's something we, we were going there anyway. It's just, you know, I was able to do it quicker because I was here. Um, and I'm just really excited about that. So I think it's just more resources. Uh, it's more focusing on investing. And I, and I, I've been able to spend way more time reading and listening to way more calls than I have in the past because you're just not doing the minutia of handling the clients and handling the day-to-day -day tasks of being a business owner. It's just, it's quite different than just being a value investor. Um, you know, I came from Artisan and that's where one of the strengths at that company was you just invested. You just focused on investing. You just focused on research. They gave you all the tools and that's kind of where I am again, right? So I'm just my day-to-day -day is not dealing with clients, not dealing with anything else. I'm just focused on investing, focused on finding great stocks um, and, you know, listen to a lot of conference calls. So in your presentation, you highlight that you're looking for businesses with sustainable competitive advantages that are also trading at a large discount to intrinsic value. In my experience, such companies are often pretty fully valued. What kind of circumstances need to exist for you to find companies that fit both criteria? You know, interestingly, I think the easy answer is patience. Because like you say, you, you you have to be able to sit on your hands and wait for a lot of these to come your way. Um, and then when the moment comes, whether, you know, a great example would be in 2020 in March, uh, we rotated a lot of the portfolio because I could buy a lot of these companies at massive discounts, which I haven't been able to see. Like companies I never thought I'd buy as a value investor, you know, Amazon, Moody's, Thermo Fisher, CoStar, just great companies that would have always been incredibly expensive. Um, but what, in the reality of the matter is, you know, a lot of times you find these good companies and you're just, you're watching them and waiting and then something happens, right? Um, for example, like we bought Generac in the beginning of the year and that's a company I've admired for a long time, but until they stubbed their toes and until they came off the back of co the COVID benefits that they saw, like I never got that opportunity. And then as, as all the growth people flushed it, valuation came down, it gave us that opportunity to go to go get it. Similarly, you know, in March, uh, you saw Google, uh, you know, we haven't had a chance to own Google before and Google came down to uh, look to us to be about 15 times our normal earnings estimate. And we pulled the trigger. Um, you know, we think that's probably about a 25% discount to the low end of fair value uh, when we do an intrinsic value of Google. So, you know, it does happen, but you need things like you need some event for people to get nervous, whether it's in Google's case, it was, hey, AI is going to wipe out Google search. Uh, I mean, that seems like jump, you know, jumping the gun to us. We, we just think it's different. AI is meeting different uh, needs, right? So when you're searching for Google, a lot of times you're looking for that product. When you're asking AI something, you're not looking for the product. You're looking for help, you know, crafting some kind of content. And it just seems different to us. And we just didn't think it was as big as threat. And then you also have to look under the hood and go, where are the best researchers for AI in the world? And I'm willing to bet that at least 20 out of 100 of them are sitting at Google. And so to think that they can't catch that or understand that, um, or the fact that Google itself is already its own little AI machine when you're when you're typing an a, a, a query in, it just didn't seem correct to us. So, you know, it can happen. And then on those really high quality companies like Google, you're not going to wait for a 40 or 50% discount because you might never see it. You're going to go quicker. Now, let's just say there's a company like Generac where there's still some problems on it. You're going to want a deeper discount to that. Or for example, we bought Expedia recently too. And you wanted a deeper discount um, when you're going to go after those. But if you have a real compounder 
a high quality company that can grow like a Republic Services, a Google, you know, um, used to be Apple. Um, you know, you'd look at those things and you would, you're, you're going to pay a smaller discount to get them. But even Republic Services, when we bought that, um, it was trading, you know, and it was just super cheap. We could, it was just down because of the COVID and didn't make sense to us. Um, so you would take those opportunities where we can find them. But generally what ultimately happens is it means we have less turnover. Um, similar, we run a concentrated portfolio, so we don't have to turn over a lot. But when it does happen, a lot of times you'll see it in spurts. So if you look at our two most active trading periods where we you know, sold maybe two or three or, or two or three transactions in a quarter, it was March of 2020. And it was um, just recently March of this year. So generally something's happening, which is giving us the opportunity to make all those changes. In that, in that response, you mentioned, mentioned concentration, and that's a topic I've thought a lot about recently. Talk about, a little bit about how concentrated your strategy is and you know how you, as you were m- moving on from Artisan, how you decided on that level as the one that suits you. That's a really good question. You know, my, to be comfortable with it, a part of that was embedded me embedded when I started investing, right? So you start reading Buffett and Munger and everything, and you'll notice that they talk about being concentrated quite a bit. Um, you know, Buffett has gone up to 75% in a single position. Um, you know, Munger tells you you're, you're basically an idiot if you don't concentrate. Um, and then, you know, when I was at Wharton, we were, I was studying it. And one of the things that when we took the best track records over a 30-year period, a few things stood out. Um, those folks concentrated more than the average typical mutual fund, holding anywhere from, you know, 15 to 25 names. Uh, you also saw they weren't in New York, which was kind of interesting to me. Um only about 30% of them were in New York, despite the fact that, you know, 80% of our industry resides there. Um, little things like that. They're mostly value investors. I guess, you know, you had Kaufman and some others that weren't, but, you know, mostly value investors. So those things kind of stood out to me. And then when you look at the research, um, and even just this week, UBS put out a piece. So UBS quantitative research said, hey, guess what? Once you get to 24 names, you're on the median about 10% more volatility in the market. And it doesn't really shrink after that. So... You know, the, the numbers were there. And then my experience at Artisan, to your point, also helped that. So we had a large cap value fund there. Uh, we ran typically around 35 names. And, you know, the top 10 or 12 names would be a big chunk of the portfolio. Um, and you could see that that drove the returns. Those names drove the returns. The other ones didn't. Like the 1% and 2% positions, you know, even if we got that right or we had a buyout, it really didn't do a whole lot to the portfolio. Um, and I know a lot of people view risk as volatility, um, which is why they don't want to do this. Um, I think that's a mistake, right? So risk is just one measure, or volatility rather, is just one measure of risk. There's other things like balance sheet, um, you know, valuation. Those things matter. What's your downside? You know, and we think that about risk. We think about concentration risk. And like even in that UBS um, report they ran last week, one of the things I thought was interesting is they randomly selected stocks so they didn't give any concentration to a sector, even a thought. So there could have been samples where you had, you know, you know, 15 out of the 20 were tech names, right? So you just don't know. They were running it randomly. Um, I think also you have to just make sure that the concentrations you have in the portfolio, you're not owning, sitting there owning all the same risk. Um, and in fact, in 2020, in the Q1 of 2020, that actually bit us in the that bit us in the behind, right? So we had a, a really uh, big drawdown in, the, in Q1 2020. It's really the only time we had a big drawdown uh, with the fund. And what happened there was, it turns out when you look across the portfolio, I thought we were diversified, but apparently we had a really strong correlation with shutting the world down. So we had a lot of chemical companies, we had a lot of transportation companies, we had a lot, you know, we had Royal Caribbean in there. We even had a life insurance company, uh, Prudential, which everyone, you know, oh my God, you know, you need life insurance, everyone's going to die. Um, so what we found was, we had 17 to 20 names in the portfolio at the time. We're really impacted by COVID. Um, you know, we, you know, we have looked at this about six months ago. We went and looked, and if we didn't sell anything, we just maintained the portfolio. We still would have come out on top and done well over time as those all bounced back. Um, however, you know, we did take advantage of the opportunity to rocket it a little bit quicker out of the out of the gate and bought some higher quality companies that we didn't own before. But you know, that was one where. You know, I learned a lesson too. Like we had, for example, we were really bullish on energy um, in 2019, coming out of 2019. We noticed that the world had been undersupplied for two years. It really wasn't part of the narrative out there. Um, And we were approaching a level of oil demand at about 101 million barrels a day, which was 
equivalent to what we thought global production capacity was. So we expected, you know, prices to accelerate. Um, and then obviously when you shut the world down, that's that's not going to happen. You know, everyone knows oil went negative, you know, famously in March, or I'm sorry, rather in April 2020. So, you know, one of the things from that is now that we still really like oil, we don't have four names, we have two names. Um, in fact, we just recently um, in our portfolio, we shifted out of a refiner and added another EMP company. So before we had one EMP, one refiner, um, the refining margins have just gotten really, really fat. They're currently around $30 a barrel. And it just doesn't seem like that can be sustainable going forward. It could be. And this could be a whole new golden era of refining, kind of like a, in the, the mid-2000s. Uh, it just seems unlikely to us. And not only that, but if we expect oil prices to increase rapidly, refining margins can actually come down. And in fact, refiners underperform when oil's ripping, and it, they actually do really well when it's coming down. So it actually acts as a counterbalance. And in this case, we, we think it's going to go up, right? If we look around the United States, we're currently undersupplied by about 2 million barrels a day. Global demand uh, appears to be about 103 million barrels a day, according to some reports we saw back in July. Uh, we still don't think the world can produce more than 101 million barrels a day, full out. So that's what Iran full out. You know, Saudi, if you actually look at the production data, has not come down as much as they've talked about. Um, so we look at we look at those, and we're like really bullish on oil. We're starting to see oil move. The narrative seems to be shifting. Um, when you look at the uh, ownership reports and you look at the commitment of traders reports, it doesn't seem like people are all bullish on oil yet and it's starting to move. And it's the only thing working right now. If you look at the markets the last month, I think, you know, since the end of July, when the markets kind of peaked in this most recent high, oil has done really, really well um, and the, the stock market isn't. So, you know, we wanted to switch and add extra EMP exposure. Uh, we had already owned um, Diamondback Energy, which is one of the, in my mind, one of the best operators in the Permian. Great management team, great acreage, has done capital allocation super well. Uh, we recently added Pioneer to the portfolio as well um, to kind of round that out. Um, you know, that stock hasn't performed as well in the last year, given that, that they have a lot of the same correlations as the other Permian players. Um, we, you know, so we ended up going there and uh, selling our uh, Phillips 66 in exchange for it because we didn't want to take too much risk in what concentration in one sector. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And so when you say you're really bullish on a position, like is that a five percent, two and a half, seven and a half? Like, I mean, what's what is a is it it sounds like you have 20 stocks, is it equal weighted at five percent? How how should we think about concentration? Well, we start coming into a position if we're like, okay, this is really attractive, we like this, it's better than we have. Uh, you know, the discount is pretty wide, but there's still some some you know issue that has to be resolved. We might come in at a 4% position, 3.5% position as we open it up. There's only one instance in the last three years where we really said, oh my gosh, this is the most attractive thing I might have seen in the last decade go. And that was Builder's first source. And we opened it up at a 6.5% position. We came, we came strong. Um, we usually do not do that. And then back to the concentration question, we're very active in trimming the position as it grows. So for, you know, Builder's just happened, you know, by luck to go straight up. Um, you know, we bought it around $60. It started going up. Uh, it's currently, you know, I think it's 128 today. It peaked at 150 a while ago. But while it was going up, it got to a 9.5% position. And the stock was around $88, $89. And you have to ask yourself, would I buy this stock today at a 9% weight in the portfolio at this price? You know, mm -hmm. it was still on the low, what we thought the low half of fair value was, because we think about things in ranges, intrinsic value and range. And it was kind of, it wasn't, to the middle yet but it was just below the middle um and the answer was no you would not sit there today and create a new position at nine percent so we trimmed it down to eight uh trimmed it down to seven and a half rather you know once again it kept going up got back up to nine percent we trimmed it back down to six and then recently when it got to 150 when it was closer to the high end of our range um we decided to like okay let's take it down a little bit more i don't want to sell it yet because it's a compounder and it's not well ahead of that estimate I think the hardest part about being an investor isn't buying a stock, it's selling it. And it's so many value investors sell a stock way too early. And I'm guilty of this. I, you know, I sold Apple like $100 ago thinking it was fully valued. Um, so it happens. And I, I'm more 
I think one of the things that has changed in the last two, three years, you know, being the portfolio manager is that I am more willing to hold a compounder if it gets to the top end of fair value versus saying, okay, you know, stock is, you know, let's say builders first source and say, okay, it's worth somewhere between, you know, $80 and 150, you know, and then we're reevaluating that. So as they buy back shares and as they uh, prove that their business is more durable than I thought from a margin, it's time to go lift that up potentially, right? So they might grow into a higher valuation in the next six months. And I'm going to be really glad that I just took it down to four and a half because once you exit, once you sell it to zero, it is really hard to bring it back. It's just, it's one of these mental hurdles um, that's super difficult. So, and we also make a lot of money trimming and adding. So we've trimmed, you know, we, we trimmed it. The last trim was at 150. Let's just say it comes back to, you know, all the way down to 120. Like we're going to bring that right back to 5%. Right. And a lot of alpha can be created because you already know the company well. You're following it day by day. You see every single move and you're like, okay, we're at the top end of our range. Let's trim it. There is a very good chance, you know, markets are, you know, weighing machines at the end of the day. Let's just say it comes back down to the lower end of fair value. We'll add it, we'll take it right back up to like a five and a half percent weight. Um, we do do that. And then it goes back up and we'll trim it. So that does happen in the portfolio. It's another way we think about risk mitigation. We're just not going to let something run to a 12% weight in the portfolio. Um, you know, the biggest thing in the portfolio today is Capri Holdings, and that's only because they're being bought out. Um, and I'm and I'm looking for a, a replacement for it. And effectively, the ARB is still pretty wide. So it's got a $57 takeout price. It's currently about $52, $53. So I'm willing to sit on that. And it looks like a ca extra cash which isn't bad too with what's going on in the markets these days. So we're looking for another name. Um, we have a, we have some ready to go, but it's just, do I want to wait for that ARB to close and get some better tax benefits for my clients, um, which is what we're effectively doing. So it's interesting. You talk about compounders, you talk about owning Google, but then you also talk about owning energy, which I don't think many people think are like, you know, businesses yeah. that are, you know, sexually getting more valuable. You know, and so growth and value are oftentimes unhelpful labels, but I'm interested in how you describe your strategy to new and existing investors, because it seems pretty eclectic in, in, in given what you're willing to own. Yeah, I, you know, I want to have different things going on in the portfolio at any given time. Like we want things that are working, for example. Um, and I learned that, you know, Leon Cooperman talked about that one day and it was like a light bulb going off. You're like, you want things that are working and those are the compounders. And you, you at the end of the day, after doing this for five or six years, if you just sat there and you had all compounders, you'd probably do pretty well. Um, I want to own those, but at the same time, you can create a lot of alpha by going into cyclical. And I call those time arbitrage plays. So when you look at a cyclical industry, if they have a good balance sheet, which energy right now, companies have amazing balance sheets. Um, so they're trading for, you know, uh, some of these, I think Diamond back there, they did all the math again. At $75 oil, it was trading for a 9% free cash flow yield. At 85, it's trading for, you know, 13% free cash flow yield, 14% free cash flow yield. So it doesn't seem really risky to me when I'm looking at it that way, because they don't have the balance sheets that they had going into, you know, 2018. They really clean things up. But you want, in my mind, I want some companies that are, okay, these are more cyclical companies, but they have good balance sheets and the market does not like them right now. And I want that to be part of the part of our portfolio because I know that hey, if this thing can really go to our estimate of intrinsic value using normalized earnings, it's worth 50, 60, 100 percent more. And if I can make 100 percent over it and I can wait three, four years for that to happen, that's a really nice return. Um, the key to what you want to do is, and I've you know I've seen this before, is where your your whole portfolio is these time arbitrage plays. And then the market goes up and you're like, oh, and they're all realizing and you're flipping the new names. And the problem is all of a sudden you look down and, you know, you want your garden to have your, 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 I actually, Scott Satterwood, I worked with this great analogy. He called it the garden. And he's like, hey, I want a third of my portfolio to be blooming, you know, a third to be kind of coming along, maybe like struggling a little bit. And then a third to be brand new. And those are the weeds, right? And he's, he's literally like, okay, we, you want them a third, a third, a third, because, you, what you don't want is all weeds in your portfolio that are getting ready to turn or all you know weeds in new companies where there's nothing working because you'll get fired, right? And not only that, but you'll have really bad performance over that period of time. Um, and so I look at it that way. I'm like, I want, I don't want all of that. I want a portion of my portfolio there. Um, and they also give you a better chance to buy high and sell low and and do the trimming that we discussed. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it. It's it's just I'm trying to dive 
to say, okay, I have 20 names. I want a certain number to be compounders, and I got those. And I want certain to be certain the ones to be turnarounds, and I want certain one of them to be, um, you know, more cyclical. Hey, just things are just out of favor right now. Um, you know, I don't own an office REIT in the portfolio, but with all the carnage there, I'm looking. Um, and you know, that's something where you say, okay, well, people come back to the office in four or five years. I don't know yet. I'm not comfortable enough, but it's worth to go look. Similarly, when oil's, you know, 40, 50 bucks, um, and you can see the economy starting to come back and we have a vaccine, you know, we went pedal to metal, you know, that November of 2020, because we're like, oh goodness, you know, if this comes back, we're, these things are going to do really well because they're pricing in, you know, $50 oil forever, which doesn't make sense to us. So, but I'm, and I'm willing to wait two to years to get those. Now it didn't take two years. It took a year for those to really get going, but um, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to stack the portfolio with different exposures, you know, different things happening. And that comes back to being able to do that within a concentrated portfolio. I think it helps it. Right. And it, everything's about risk and lowering your risk and not losing money. And so those are the things we've done in the portfolio and how we think about it to reduce risk outside of saying, Hey, volatility is risk. So it's, it's really uh, a comprehensive uh, way to manage the portfolio. And within those buckets of companies that aren't necessarily compounders, but, you know, maybe get, you know, are trading at a good mo- recent valuations. How have you thought about trying to avoid investing in value traps, which is, a you know, a security that, you know, every it's all it always looks cheap, even, you know, it's cheap at 100, it's cheap at 50, it's cheap at, cheap at 25 and it's cheap at five because, the, the the results deteriorate you know even fast you know as as, as fast as the multiple how um you know how have you thought about mitigating that risk you know this i've done that obviously i've done that every value investor has done that um i would have done generac earlier and lost 40 percent, but i and, and and i didn't and and something and i and i did it with altice so i own this company called altice it's a cable company and, uh, you know, it had fallen quite a bit and it looked overdone to me and it looked like they still had their cash flows left. And it looked like th- their explanation for their short term issues seemed completely rational to me. And not only that, but they were, you know, I thought they were making a good decision to invest, to expand their fiber. And they were investing an appropriate not, amount of money. They had a lot of debt on the balance sheet, but, you know, with, with I'm like, OK, it's cable, it's subs. And I, I, I went and tried to catch that falling knife and it, it, it hurt. And from that, I was like, you know, there's got to be more ways to think about this. And one of the things that I've evolved as an investor is, you know, which is unique for value investing is one of the things I do now is I look at that. We look, we actually look at when it comes time to make that buy decision or like, okay, let's go in. I'm looking at the technicals now. So I'm starting to say, okay, has this stock at least shown some kind of bottom pattern has, you know, is it coming back above its moving averages, you know? And that's actually helped us because it made us sit on our hands for Generac while it went from 200 to 100. Um, similarly, you know, same thing with Expedia. We sat there and we waited and we had, when we want to add a new name to the portfolio, we have three or four names that we're ready to go on. And the other thing we're doing is we're watching to say, hey, are one of these starting to break out or one of these starting to work? Because a lot of time when you're doing that time arbitrage play or you're waiting, you know, it can be two, three years or you can be wrong and it's going straight down. So Altice was going straight down when we bought it. And I can tell you that's probably the last time I'm going to do that. Um, and it's and by not doing that, it's I think it's helped us. And it's it's something that's new that we've been doing for the last you know really two years since that happened. Um, and I think it's benefited us in the new names that we bought. So we've sat there and waited. And for example, you know when it came time to add to the portfolio, and we saw, you know, we had our three names. Well, Expedia started working. I'm like, like all three Expedia, we thought fit in the portfolio well, and so we pulled the trigger on that one. Um, now the other two have done well too. So, you know, if we just waited a few months, it would have been fine. But I think it has really helped us as, you know, trying to avoid the value trap um, and being patient and not saying, okay, hey, look at this stock is trading this big discount, like to our estimate of intrinsic value, to our range of intrinsic value. Let's just go now. It doesn't matter, you know. But the reality is, is there have been too many situations in my career at Artisan and here where you've done that and it, you're not going to catch the bottom. I can't time the market. I don't think anyone can. And you can't time it, even an individual stock. But I think there's enough people out there that are doing quant analysis and all the computers now that when you know you see, okay, hey, the 50-day moving average has moved up. Hey, volume's moving up. Hey, the, you know, we've just crossing the 200-day or crossing the 160-day. Um, and not only that, but like, you know, this you're starting to see, um, you know, vol- that with volume, 
okay, hey, yeah, I might have missed the very bottom by 10, 15%. But if it's still trading for 40% on the below my, you know, low end of intrinsic value, I should pull that trigger all day. So that's just something we've kind of added. I think it's unique for value investors. I'm not like, I don't think anyone else I know that does it. Um, and it's something we've added in the last two years, just on that, the final, okay, let's go decision on buying a new stock. So sometimes, for example, if I don't have any stocks that are doing that, I'll I'll wait with, you know, 5% cash or 6 or 7% cash in those positions waiting to find one of the ones that are on the, our watch list. And so, you know, what we do here is we watch a lot of companies. So we're watching 170, 180 companies. We learn a new one. We spend a lot of time putting that on there. And that's really been de developed over my experience at Artisan as a generalist. So, I, you know, one of the reasons I went to Artisan to begin with was it was very hard to find a generalist role in investing that they just don't exist. And I remember I was sitting in an interview when I was at Wharton with the people from Fidelity. I'm like, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I I'm, do you have any kind of generalist roles? And the lady lit up and she's like, we do have a generalist position. Um, and the way it works is it's this rotational program. And like you could be covering Nordic Airlines for six months and you can come back to the United States and cover something else for six months. And I was kind of like, no, I want to do the Nordic Airline in the morning and the utility in the afternoon and the semiconductor stock, you know, next week. Um, and Artisan afforded me that ability to do that. So when I was recruiting, it was I was looking for value shops with good investors who could mentor me. And I was looking for places where I could be a generalist so that I would have this capacity to go do that once I decided to start my own place and be a portfolio manager myself. I just think coming from one industry um, and then becoming a portfolio manager has got to be really tough because then you got to learn all the other industries. Let's just say I had six analysts running around and I was just an energy analyst and I became a portfolio manager. Well, I got to sit there and really trust the person who knows Expedia really well to like be able to, to get comfortable with it. Um, one of the things about being a journalist is, am I a super expert on everything? Absolutely not. Do I know enough to be dangerous? Yes. And I know enough that, okay, these are, I put guardrails in place. These are the companies I know. I think these are great companies. I would love to own them at the right price. And we keep finding them and we put them on the board. So we got a screen on Bloomberg. It says, hey, these are the companies. I put them up there. They're group by industry and we're watching them all the time. Um, and when something happens to them, like a CVS gets in trouble, you know, recently, like, hey, we can go pretty quick and do our work on CVS and see what's going on. You know, Disney's starting to get in trouble. Um, you know, we can do our work on it. You know, I think there's still room for it to go down. So I'm not going to do anything there yet. Um, but, you know, we can move a lot quicker because we already know the companies and we, it just allows us to, to move quicker and make those decisions and it keeps us out of trouble. Um, but starting from that point, we watch those. And then if something is getting close, is, is starting to trade below our intrinsic value, things are happening, we move those to a different part of the screen and we start watching those more closely. So like right now on that list, we've got you know eight companies on that list. Like I said, three of which who, if you said, hey, Tyler, I've got to replace Capri today because the deal's going to fall apart, something's going to happen. Like I would get, you know, we could pull one of those in um, if we needed to quickly. And uh, I, I noted that, that, you'd created that 170 company watch list. And I thought that was fascinating. Can you talk about the criteria you use to compile that watch list? Like what is it, what does it take to, to get on that list and stay on that list? Well, the first thing is, have you shown that you have a business that has some kind of competitive advantage with sustainable margins? We start there. So that's number one, because if you don't have, it doesn't matter who's managing the business, how they're allocating capital. If you do not have a good business, that's table stakes, right? So we spent a lot of time, looking for those. And there's evidence of that, right? You see high margins, high returns on invested capital. Um, you generally see companies that throw out a lot of cash. Um, they're making smart investments. Like those are the first things that we look at and we do a full analysis of the industry. So when I started as an analyst, it wasn't like, hey, go find random stocks. It was, here's the utilities, go learn the entire thing and find the best ones. Here's trucking companies, go learn the best ones, find, you know, find the best ones. You know, here's semiconductor companies, same thing. So when I started at Artisan, it was go do a whole industry deep dive, find the best performers in the group. Um, and then those are, that's how they got on the watch list to begin with. So the watch list was originally created by saying, hey, these companies are, we, we did the whole industry. These companies look great. We're going to start watching these ones. And so a lot of the list came that way. Since then, 
you're picking up new companies that either, you know, for some reason that something's turned around there or something's happened or, hey, I might have missed this one or I just didn't know. Like right now I'm doing a deep dive on uh, restoration hardware. I've never really looked at it before, but there's something special happening with that CEO and the margins are great and I got to go figure it out. So, for example, that'll take, you know, that might take me a month to learn. But if it's going to get on the list, it's going to get on the list. Right. If not, hey, fun. It's still there. I'm, I'm aware of it. I know it now. Um but am I going to keep following it? It's if I if I think it has those characteristics. And the other thing besides just are you a high quality company that can continue growing and protect your margins is are you shareholder friendly? And there's a lot of ways we think about that. And and quite simply, one of the first things you do when you look at a company is you pull up the proxy statement, you look at the pay section and be like, is this reasonable? And then you look at related party transactions because if this CEO is not going to be a good if he's going to I don't want to use the wrong word, but if he's, if he's going to um, be less friendly to his shareholders. Well, I can guarantee right now if his son or daughter is working at the company in, in HR and they're making $600,000, $700,000 and getting stock options, this is probably not the person you want running your business. This is not a shareholder-friendly person. Um, and so we think about those things. We look at how do they allocate capital? You know, One of the things I like to do before we, when we add a name to this list is I'll pull 10 years of shareholder letters and are they telling are they telling the story you know over 10 years right is is the ceo saying hey we're going to do these and these things are happening you know you can see it over a long period of time um you know i always used to appreciate there was this uh uh the ceo of um it used to be agrium now it's nutrient he and now he's since gone over to cortiva but he he would write this great letter every year and he'd say hey here's the things we're going to do this year and then oh by the way here's what i said last year and here's how we did against them I mean, I wish every CEO would do it. Would, it would make life a lot easier, right? And you can see, hey, these are the goals. These make sense. And a lot of times you see operating margins increasing at a company. Well, if you go back and look at the letters, you can see, hey, three years ago, they said, we're going to try to improve operating margins. It's going to be through X, Y, and Z. And then you go look and they actually did X, Y, and Z. And now operating margins are higher. That gives me a whole lot more confidence in the management team and their ability to for those margins to be sustainable. Um, so those are the kind of things we're looking at. And just hey, if you made acquisitions or stock buybacks, um, I want to I want to know why. You know, like are you just buying stock to offset dilution? Because in my mind, those are two different decisions. Um, you shouldn't ever. If I ever hear that, like I'm just not in. We're, we're done. I'm not interested. Um, and the difficulty is there's not a lot of great capital allocators out there. Uh, you know, Buffett's obviously an easy one. So owning Berkshire, I don't have to think about that. Um, but if you look. You know, look at the book of the outsiders, you know, there's not a lot of companies in there. So finding those CEOs that can manage and allocate capital that aren't just blindly wasting money. Um, when you find all those things and put them together, I think you're going to win over time. And we consider those our guardrails. And if you combine that with a great balance sheet um, where they can't get in trouble, uh, I, I think you're reducing your risk. Uh, and if you combine that with, oh, by the way, they're giving you all the cash back and a great dividend yield. That's just one more... That's, that's a one more piece of money they can't waste. It's one more confirmation that the earnings they're making are real and not accounting gimmicks. And it's you know allowing me to reallocate that to a higher use. Because by getting that dividend, they're telling you, you know, if you have a company with a return on invested capital of 15% and they're giving you a dividend yield, it means there's not a lot of opportunities left for that 15%. And you know I appreciate that. And you know we can hopefully compound double digits. That's our goal. So you know I, I'm happy to take that cash and go do that. Um, but yeah, those are the things we look for. We create the guardrails, keeps us out of trouble. Um, and that's the process to getting on the on that board. And then we watch you and we have a, we do an intrinsic value range and it's, there's a low end and a high end, right? We try to get some kind of normal earnings power with the company. What should these guys look like in three, four years as, as normal events occur? You know, just so we know what are the outliers? What's when bad happens? You know, how do they do in 2020? How do they do in 2008? Um, and we, and we come with that range. And then once it trades below it or it, it gets close to it, it goes to the front of that watch list, like I described. And then from there, it can get into the portfolio or not. And we have had a few opportunities where you've owned the company twice because they've gone to the top and come right back mm. um, after we've sold it. So CVS was an example of that. Um, you know, we bought it at 70 bucks, sold it at 105, and now it's back to $70. And like we looked at the math and Fact, the earnings power went up our estimate of normal earnings and we don't think the valuation multiple changed and so now you know we're back in that stock and you mentioned dividends and i think given the popularity of growth stocks recently these companies often don't pay dividends and so dividends have maybe taken a back seat in recent years 
What do you think people are missing if they're not focusing on yields that you can get from dividends when you look at the total return profile of a, of a, of a company and a portfolio? Well, you know, I would say, first of all, you don't need them. It's not a requirement for stock to have a dividend to get in our portfolio. I mean, we, own, we own plenty of companies that don't pay dividends, but they're compounding at higher rates and they're reinvesting the capital. Like, like I said, Berkshire doesn't pay a dividend, but we own it. For me, the dividend is just a reflection of the cash flow. And it's it, it's telling you, hey, we have a very strong business and we feel confident giving you the money back. And, you know, we do have two stocks in the portfolio that they have very high dividend yields that a lot, you know, that are out of favor right now. You know, we own Verizon. Um, Verizon's probably been the weakest performer we've had outside of Altice during our five-year run here. Um, and when I look at that right now today, you know, you're getting a, what, like an 8% yield? Like, so if you think about it, to lose money on Verizon here, uh, even I think their earnings power can actually increase as they as they reduce their spend. So right now they're spending 21, 22 billion a year on capex on on 5G. As that rolls down to 17 billion dollars, you're gonna have a little bit extra money. They're gonna be able to push some more pricing power at some point. You know, at, their their subsidies for iPhones will come down after probably after this 15. You know, their the comp T-Mobile is a, is a little bit less aggressive than they used to be. AT and T has no room to be aggressive. So you're looking at this and you're like, okay. I think they can can make five bucks a share, like just even if they just do it for four or five years. I think they can actually increase the, that in the outer years. And you look at that and say, okay, well, it's getting an eight percent yield, so that means in order to lose money from here, the stock has to go down by twenty four percent. If it goes down by twenty four percent, it's going to be trading for about five and a half times that earnings number. And you got to sit there and go, should Verizon trade at five and a half times earnings? And the answer is probably not. Right now. So when you look at that dividend, it gives us a lot of room to be wrong. It, it almost creates its own margin of safety, if you will, if you believe in the strength of the dividend and it being there. Um, Altria is the same way. We own Altria. Um, you know, it same thing, 8% yield, a really high yield. And, uh, you know, they, they're actually growing earnings every year. So they're not even in the situation that Verizon is where they're not. And then once again, they're trading at a low multiple. Um, you know, it's interesting. Jeremy Siegel was one of my professors at Wharton, and he brought up when we were there, uh, you know, he's like the best performing, best performing stock over the last 50 years when I took his class back in 08 was actually Altria. And, you know, no one guessed it in the room, you know, Altria crushed everything. And you're like, well, how is that possible? They had all that litigation. Everyone knows smoking is bad. Everyone knows, you know, cigarette volumes have been going down for 30 years straight. Like, how is that possible? Well, what happened was, is they gave you all the cash back and you could reinvest it at 10 times earnings over a 50 year period. It was, it just crushed everything. There is, you know, not to come back to the word compounding again, but you know, you can reinvest the dividend, a high dividend, you're, you're doing pretty well. Um, it really gives you a huge advantage to compound quicker. Um, and that's effectively what we're doing with those two names. Uh, the other name with a high dividend yield that's in the portfolio, um, the energy companies do, but that's just variable dividends that they're paying now. Uh, but we also own artisan partners. And I know I worked there in the past. So people are like, hey, why do you own that? Um, you know, I didn't think I would own it. It's one of those things that kept showing up on my screen. And you can say, I obviously know the business really well. Um, and I had never been a shareholder in it before. And, you know, we bought it. I was looking at the stock price. And I'm like, okay, well, the stock is reflecting an AUM, in my mind, somewhere around 110 to $120 billion at Artisan. At the time, they had about 150. Um, right now, they have, I think in the last uh, last month they released, it was $142 billion. So, that stock in my mind is still incredibly undervalued at its current price um, because it's reflecting a much lower AUM level. And even if, even if you say, okay, hey, look at the, it's looking ahead and seeing some kind of big 20% sell-off coming. Well, that's fine because then I'm paying that price today, right? So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm getting that value today and they give you all the cash back. So they have a variable dividend model. Um, CME Group, which we own, has the exact same model. And I, I wish more companies would do this. So what they do is they pay a low, a, a low or moderate, you know, hey, we know we can make this every year. Here's the quarterly dividend. And then they pay a variable dividend on top of it. They pay it out every quarter. Uh, so whatever excess cash flow they have left on the mm. on the balance sheet that quarter, they give it to you. Uh, CME Group does a similar thing where they pay it off at the end of the year. They say, hey, look, at, and they do something even better in my mind. I think they have the best dividend policy out there, the best capital return policy out there. So what they do is they give you the small little dividend every quarter. And at the end of the year, they give you a special dividend or they'll buy back shares. So they, they literally tell you, hey, we need this much cash with the balance sheet. If we end the year, whatever is above that, we're going to pay you back. And not only that, but if our stock is really, really cheap, 
we're going to signal that to you and we're going to buy back the shares. So it almost has this mechanism built in where they're not going to do share repurchases unless it's really, really cheap. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of capital is wasted with that. Uh, you know, I have some healthy debates with uh, my former professor, Alex Edmund. He's a, he's a, uh, he's at London business school now. Uh, and he's a, he's a big fan of the buybacks. And I'm just, I think it destroys a lot of value. And the reason buybacks destroy value is well, when do you have excess cash? Well, when things are going well, well, when things are going well, what's your stock price? It's likely fairly valued or most likely even more likely overvalued. So you're destroying value by buying back shares in my mind. Um, and you're seeing a lot of that out there right now. You've seen a lot the last few years. I know a lot of people regret doing buybacks, you know, in 2021, where then they got, oh my God, I could have bought it so much cheaper. So, um, you know, and even restoration hardware. So they just announced on their quarterly call a week or two ago that they bought back 17% of the shares um, because they just thought the stock was undervalued. And you're, you know, I'm not sure what the valuation is yet because I'm still working on that. But I saw that. I'm like, wow, hey, that's a message. So if he's right, he just created a ton of value. But if he's wrong, he just destroyed a ton of value. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm still working on that. But when you see that, I think it's, it's telling you something too. Like, okay, this person understands capital allocation if he's right. Um, but what you don't want to see is at the top, like, you know, that stock, I think, got up to as high as six or $700. It's nice to see that he did it at 350 or 325 and not 700 So if he came in at 700 and like, hey, I'm buying back 17% of the company because we have the cash, that would have been a, that would have been very destructive. And you mentioned that you're an artisan. Um, I think it would, it, some people might say that it'd be very hard for you to disentangle your own potential biases given the duration of your experience there. How do you... How do you separate yourself from your experiences there? The people you know, how well you know the business, obviously, you know, familiarity breeds liking. I mean, talk to me a little bit about how you thought about risk managing your own biases in the artisan position. Yeah, I think when I look at artisan in my, you know, I wasn't a shareholder prior to it. So I never, they never gave me shares when I worked there. Um, you know, artisan two is a little bit different where I didn't know all the other investment managers. Um, so they, they silo things off. So it's not like you're seeing a, a floor in Boston, if you're at Fidelity or you're in, you know, in Baltimore or T-Row and you, you have all the teams that are there. So the way artisan works is they actually silo the portfolio teams. So for example, the U.S. domestic value team, which is what I worked out was in Atlanta, the domestic growth team, uh, they're up in Milwaukee, international growth teams out in San Francisco, you know, the, International value guys are in both San Francisco and Chicago. Um, you know, the, the uh, they have this great manager who does high yield bonds. He's out in Kansas City. So you don't really, you, you don't build that like you would think, right? So a lot of stuff happens within the silo. And when I look at Artisan, it's really like, it's like a boutique. It's like a very well-run boutique, but they have separate boutiques. So it's all, it's, it's, it's almost, um, it's, it's not the same, uh, it's not it's not similar to the traditional asset manager out there. And I think that's part of their strength too. So, you know, it allows them to go get the best people. They say, hey, we think you're really good at what you do. So when they bought, brought Brian Krugen, for example, um, to do the high yield, you know, they're like, hey, you can live wherever you want. You get the resources you want. We just want you focused on investing. We're going to bring you world-class distribution. And, you know, that allows them to attract better managers, which has produced really good returns. So you you look at the Morningstar Awards, like those people have stacked them up over there. Um, you know, the, the guys I worked with got a Morningstar of the Year. The growth guys have got Morningstar of the Year. The international guys have all got Morningstar of the Year awards. So they've been able to attract really good talent. And as long as those people are there, um, you know, I think that's key. Now, if I sat there and I saw, hey, uh, you know, if, if Samra and O'Keefe on the global teams left, yeah, you can, and there's, you know, they have like 50 billion between them or 40 billion between them. That's a problem. Um, that's the biggest risk with owning artisan in my mind. Um, you know, and they have a lot of new guys that are starting to prove their worth. And I think artisan is also unique is their distribution. And you can see this in the AUM, right? Cause there's been outflows from active for a very long time now. You know, it's, uh, even the team that I, I was on an artisan, like those have stopped. Um, they have built a very good distribution arm. They have a very good business with the pension funds. They have very good business with all the 401k programs. They have great business with, you know, sovereign wealth funds. And because of that distribution arm they've built and because of the talent they've been able to, to acquire, I just think that their earnings have been a lot more stable than you would have expected. And you can see that in the numbers. Um, and, 
you know, am I biased? I, I don't, I, I, I'm sure I'm biased. Everyone's biased. Um, I don't think I'm biased in putting that in the portfolio because when I did it, I look at things and say, okay, our portfolio, what's the operating margin of all the companies? What's the return on capital of all the companies? What's the the leverage? So the net debt to EBITDA of all the companies, what's the dividend yield? Um, and then what's the PE and how does this compare to the market? When I look at Artisan on all of those metrics, it's a screaming buy in the portfolio, right? So it's trading for 10 times earnings. The market, you know, even the value index is, you know, 16 times right now. It's got no debt. It's got, you know, operating margins are anywhere between normalized between 35 and 44%. Um, they have amazing return on invested capital. So when you look at that compared to all the stuff I have in the portfolio, it actually meets it better. You know, asset management is a great business. The, you know, the key to it is finding an asset manager that won't collapse and go away really quickly. And there's a bunch of them that will like, like T-Row, awesome distribution model. Fidelity, if it was public, I think would get command a very high multiple. Uh, Artisan is one of the few ones out there too that has been able to build the distribution, been able to get good numbers. Uh, and that's why I feel comfortable doing it. Now, it's also the smallest company in the portfolio. And as we've, you know, the last two or three years as assets have come in and I want more liquidity, we've gotten rid of some of the smaller ones like the Atlanta Braves, for example, we own Liberty Braves. You know, we got to the point where that got to the high end of fair value and, and liquidity was getting, was really not there. So it's like, hey, we had this, you know, we had to get rid of that slowly. And, you know, Artisan, when I look at the portfolio of the 20, it does have the least liquidity. So if there was, hey, we need to, if we could continue to get bigger, Artisan's gonna be gone just because the fact of, I don't have enough liquidity that I feel comfortable with. Um, you don't want to go to the market on a really bad down day to have to sell something and it's not there. Um, like, I don't think that's going to happen with a Google or, you know, any company over 10 billion, you're not going to see that. With an artisan, uh, you could, you definitely could see that with the Braves. Um, so that is another, come back to the whole risk management, which is a central theme of how we think about a concentrated portfolio is I don't want a lot of those, you know, an artisan, if artisan went up to a hundred, you know, 160, $170, it would be gone. And we'd be like, Hey, that was a fun experience. We made a lot of money and we got a huge dividend along the way. Similarly, if something comes along and it has similar criteria and it's, you know, uncorrelated with the rest of the portfolio, kind of like artists, you know, and I would get rid of it. I would, I would upgrade. It would be on the upgrade list. Got it. And I want to take a step back from the portfolio management side, because we've talked a lot about ideas and specifically your strategy. And I think that's, you know, I think it's been really helpful for people to understand, you know, you, you personally decided to write a book called the value investing and discipline framework that was published in 2020. I'm interested in what the spark was to, you know, to sit down and write your own book. Yeah, it's a good question. Thank you. It was, you know, it was published in 2020. It was written in 2008. So mm -hmm. I was actually at Wharton and I had a, I had a, um, let's just say we had some extra time because recruiting was really tough trying to get a job in investment management. And I thought that, Hey, what if I, you know, put my thoughts down on paper and I, and I was, you know, I needed ideas anyway. What, what if we said, Hey, here's how we, I think about investing. And, you know, here's how I, here's some examples of some stocks that we like trying to use this methodology and put it all together. And it was really a paper, right? It was this large paper. And one of the things I like to do is mentor young, uh, young potential analysts. I do a lot of uh, internships where I, you know, get, try to get kids in their junior between, you know, sophomore and junior year. And I'm teaching them, hey, here's how you do a stock write up. Here's how you go look for a job. You know, you can put my, your name on my resume. Uh, you can put my firm on your resume. You know, really it's a more of a mentorship program. And it's like, this is how you think about it. And I would give them this manuscript. And then one of my interns in 2020 took it and just loaded it into Amazon and like came back to me. He's like, hey, congr you know, by the way, if you want to press go, I converted it to a book. It's ready to go on Amazon. Is that okay? You know, they made the cover art and everything. Um, and they just look, apparently it's super easy to do. And I'm like, hey, let's let's go for it. And so, uh, you know, he showed me that. And I, I was like, okay, I pressed the button. And, uh, you know, now like every month, a check for like $2 to $10 comes in, <laughs> in the door. So you're not going to get rich, but it's, uh, that's how that happened. And it's kind of interesting looking back at it now. In fact, um, I'm, this new analyst I'm training, I, I gave it to her to read. And, you know, you can see there's still even errors in it when I wrote it. So at some point when I, if I ever find free time, I should go back and like, correct some things and fix some things because my views have changed. Obviously we discussed it. So, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know back then. Um, and, you know, 
it's also interesting looking at the picks, right? Because you get the normal dispersion you would ex get from an unexperienced investor when I wrote those. You know, you, you've got one name, Rockwell Automation, who went through the roof, you know, went up 10x. Microsoft went up 10x. Uh, Diamond Offshore went to zero. And Carpenter Technologies kind of went sideways, you know, you know, a cyclical company up and down. So I guess you could have traded it well, but you wouldn't have gotten rich. You know, uh, you know, Microsoft at 16 solves a lot of sins. Um, you know, and similarly, you know, Rockwell, I think was 25 when we wrote that in there. So the fun thing too, is you can go back in 08 and be like, Hey, you know, Tyler picked these stocks in 20, 2008. What happened? Um, you know, so it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a fun time capsule at the same time. This season of compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And you mentioned that you're training an analyst and you're building the team. You know, I have some experience being at kind of a resource constrained uh, shop where I was kind of covering an entire universe by myself. So I'm interested in your strategy for trying to balance new idea generation and, and looking at companies that are on the list, but not in the portfolio versus the maintenance research that you have to do on the existing 20 stocks? Well, when I think about like the, so a lot of the inflow that comes where you're doing maintenance issues, luckily it comes in a, you know, a month and a half period, right? So a lot of the new name, hap the new name search happens like the, I like to say the third month of every quarter, right? So for example, right now, there's not, there's no one's reporting earnings. Um, the conferences are going on and those are easy to keep a, keep on, uh, keep on top of, but really nothing's, not a lot's happening, right? And so, you know, unless you have some news item, like today, like we own CBOE and the CEO had to abruptly exit. So we have to go, you know, figure out that who's replacing them. But, you know, there's not a lot going on. And so these month, the, the last month of a quarter gives you a lot of opportunity to go do that. And so what ultimately happens is if you go come to my office, there's a stack of paper and it's like, hey, here's new things that I don't know that and, you know, we start going through them. And if we find something we like, that's when we really get in the deep dive. You know, we're doing the case, doing all the quality conference calls, going back years, talking to anyone who I know on the ownership list. That's a great resource. Um, a lot of times, too, you know, you, you might pick up something on a podcast. You're like, wow, you know, I'm not afraid to steal an idea. And this is a, seems like a great idea. And, you know, I listen to your podcast, listen to some of the other great ones out there. And like, you know what, I'm going to put this on the list to go look at. And the only difficulty with that is sometimes you put something on that list and it and the loss goes on for a month and a half and you can finally get to it. And you're like, oh, I wish I did that because it's up, you know, 30, 40%. Uh, that happens, it's not, it doesn't happen a lot, but you know, at the same time as I don't have to swing at every pitch and there will always be something else out there. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, you're always gonna miss things. It's part of, it's part of the business and you have to kind of get yeah. comfortable with that. Um, and from a business perspective, you're building this thing, you started in 2018, you now have a great partner in Moran. What do you think success would look like if we're having the same conversation seven years from now? I think success is all about, you know, in, in my mind, hey, did did you continue to beat the market? Have you been able to do it with bigger size? Have you grown your AUM, you know, to a, a have you continuously grown your AUM and grown the business? And have you delivered for shareholders? And I think at the end of the day, that's all that I, that, that's how I would measure the success or not. Um, you know, it, at the end of the day, I'm like any other kind of value investors. Like I just want to put up a really, really high number. And if AUM didn't grow from here, it would grow from the number by itself. And that would be fine too. It'd be great if new money came in. It would be great to manage money for, you know, bigger institutions, pension funds. Cause at the end of the day, that's just more people that you get a, a, the ability to, you know, I, I think about it like I'm looking after their nest egg, right? So, the more people that I, I think I'm looking after their nest egg, and if I'm putting up good numbers, I mean, every, that's 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 success. Um, and I can the beautiful part about doing Moran is, you know, they have the resources to then go and to to then grow it, right? And with the size of market cap that we're doing, I mean, I don't I don't see how there would be any change in how we manage the portfolio if we had five or ten billion under management relative to what we have today. So. You know, and I saw that at Artisan, right? So our large cap portfolio at Artisan, I mean, we could like, you we were trading things in seconds. Um, you know, once our mid cap portfolio at one point was about 16 billion and that took a while. Um, and, you know, you get a new position that might take a month, small cap, 
at one point it was four billion. And we had 90 or 100 names in that portfolio. I can't remember precisely, but you would get a new position and it would take three months. You know, as long as we're not to the position where our size is constraining how we can make money, that's then size doesn't matter. The day that happens, you know, that's where you slow down. And that's this really comes back to focusing on what I talked about, which is the record. And the end of the day, like, can I compound money at a very attractive rate? And if I can beat the market, that's great too. And, you know, that's our goal. And, you know, double digit returns are our goal. And that's the scorecard that we measure ourselves against. We measure it over a three, four, five year period. Um, you know, we don't think about it day to day. I know a lot of portfolio managers that watch the portfolio day to day what's happening. I, I really try not to. Um, I can see it on the Bloomberg screen, but I don't add it up. Right. So I can look at it and go, oh, hey, I got, you know, 12 names up today. Three are kind of flattish and, you know, the, the others, you know, five or six are down. And you know, I know I'm winning that day, but I don't I'm not like watching. Oh, hey, we're up 50 basis points versus the index. I just don't care. Um, I care at the end of the year. I care you know, at the end of two, three years, um, you know, with the big drawdown we had in Q1 of 2020, you know, climbing out of that hole was a big goal. And, you know, we're back ahead of the indexes again, and that's great. Um, and we've done really well the last several years. So that's kind of the benchmark that I think about that success is. And the more people that can ride along on that success, the better. And when you had that drawdown in 2020, you guys had, as you said, you were 17 out of 20 companies were uniquely <laughs> exposed to COVID. You know, I know it's not a lot of solace, but like there was no way for you to predict this was going to happen, right? Like COVID was kind of a off spreadsheet event. But what do you think you learned about yourself as a decision maker during that very tough period? Uh, I learned that, you know, sometimes as an investor, you worry that you get married to your names. And and having that happen and then still being able to go and be, okay, we're, we're like, I love these companies or I'm, I, you know, I know they'll bounce back, but I'm going to sell them something better right now. Um, you know, knowing that, Hey, this is a big hole and it's going to take you two, three years to get out of and you're by yourself. Can you go do that? You know, it, I think it was more a test of, Hey, can you do this? Can you recover from this? Um, how are you going to do it with this psychologically because you're by yourself? How are you going to do, um, do you have the wherewithal to like, you know, make it back with something else? You know, a lot of times are you, Buffett talks about it. It's you do not have to make it back the same way you lost it. And I think a lot of investors, you know, they want to wait till it gets back to even. Um, and if I had done that, it still would have, I think it would have worked out over time. And I, I know we looked at it, but I, I'm glad that I under fire had the ability to like keep a clear mind and go find better things and take advantage of the opportunities you know, like Amazon at 2,800 bucks, you know, pre-split and some of those great companies that you could go buy for nothing, you know, RS, you know, Republic services. So the thing I think I learned most was I, I, I can't, I, you know, I'm never going to go through another one of those without a partner. Mm -hmm. uh, being by myself was really difficult and it was, it was, it was, it was tough. It was like drinking with a fire hose. I mean, when I think about that time period from call it March, you know, March 7th, when I realized we have a real problem, um, till maybe end of April, you know, to me, that felt like three years. It just felt like nonstop. You know, I got up at six o'clock and worked to 11. Like I didn't see a lot of my family, you know, I think looking back at that and it just really made it clear to me that the air of not bringing a partner with me when I started the firm and not bringing a salesperson and not bringing someone else I could really talk to. You know, I had I have mentors and you know former portfolio managers who would you know they'd give me a call and cheer me up and we'd talk about stuff. Um, but you know, I really did miss that. And you know, one of the benefits of being here, Moran, is that's not gonna you know that's not gonna be an issue again. So there's you know people. I got some really good investors here that I can go down the hall and talk to. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't have to worry about the business side of it either. I can just focus on the investing. So I would like to think if something like that happened again, that we would perform even better than we did last time. Uh, and then last year, you know, we did do that. We saw the big sell in the market and we did just fine. So um, it, it's better trying five years if you think about it. I mean, if you told me at the beginning of 2018 that, hey, hey we're going to, um, you're going to leave Artisan. We're going to have three bear markets, you know, two, two really huge rallies, a pandemic, and, you know, probably the, one of the biggest bubbles of all time in the next five years, I would have said no way. But, you know, here we are and it's happened. Um, 
So, you know, it's interesting. I had a call the other day with a, a, a pension fund. And at the end, he's like, you know, we really don't want you to have 10 years of, of investing experience. And I, and I was like, you know what? If we were having this call in 2018 or 2019, I would agree with you. We've had a market that's gone straight up. We haven't seen a bear market since 2008. You know, we haven't really had an investing cycle. I mean, it's been a 10-year investing cycle, so you're absolutely right. But in the last five years, we've had three cycles and we've had three bear markets. And so I would, you know, I, I would just wholeheartedly disagree with that statement anymore. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that I was tested by it. But at the same time, I, I wish I had a partner going through it. Yeah, no, that's that's really good advice for anyone who's starting thinking about starting their own firm. So Tyler, we've talked about a lot. We've talked about portfolio construction. We've talked about a lot of ideas. We've talked about your evolution as an investor and as a business person. We're going to close this podcast with the question we ask all of our manager guests. What is the most underappreciated aspect of the investing opportunity set that you're pursuing at Seagate? I, I think in the, in the end of the day, looking at a portfolio and knowing that we have better companies measured by return invested capital, measured by operating margins, um, measured by higher dividend yields with less leverage and that are trading for cheaper prices in the market. If I can have a portfolio that has significant gaps in all three, we're going to win. And you're putting everything in your favor. And there's no reason that those companies, A, shouldn't trade more than the market. And so when you have those companies and you can buy them at a discount, um, you're going to win. And not only that, but when you have down markets, you're going to have less downside. Um, and, you know, particularly we saw that a lot in 21. So, or uh, 22 rather. So, you know, I think that's probably what really differentiates us. I think just from a value perspective, I think thinking about when we go do the buy purchase, when we make the purchase decision, actually adding a little bit of quantitative analysis to it or technical analysis to it. I think that's unique relative to other value investors. And I think the concentration is unique relative to other people too. Not a lot of people concentrate. Um, I think there's way less risk to it than is, is, is out there. And I think the data shows that. I think the performance has shown that. Um, and I, you know, I, I think those are the unique differentiating factors of uh, Seagate. Well, Tyler, Congratulations on the first five years. It, as you said, you've been through you know th three cycles already. Probably you know just like myself and have have developed some new gray hair because of that uh, because of that fun experience going through 2020. Um, but uh, I think you know you you've positioned yourself you know from a, from a from a performance and a, and a, you know kind of like process perspective be successful. So thanks again for being on Compounders. Uh, it was really great to to hear your story. Thank you, Ben. During this podcast, Tyler discussed a number of securities. The only securities I own are Berkshire Hathaway and Generac.